Now, I'm going to read from Hebrews uh, 4 uh, for our reading, and uh, I hope you will see the relevance of that, uh, this in in what I'm going to say in a moment or two. Hebrews chapter 4. Paul writes, well, the writer, Paul, well, some of us, some of us think that, um, well, no, I won't go into that. anyway. Anyway, the scriptures tell us, all right, therefore, Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David today, after such a long time as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There, there, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the uh, uh, fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and it is a a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, may God bless his holy and inspired and inerrant word as I have read it in your hearing. I think indeed uh, Doddridge would have uh, emphatically endorsed Those words in verse 12, the Lord word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and so on. Well, so let's turn then to Philip Doddridge and his lectures on preaching. Philip Doddridge lived from 1702 to 1751, a few words of introduction. He's had a bad press over the years. Even Spurgeon, who heartily recommended his family expositor, did not consider that Doddridge was as bold and as orthodox as he should have been. And consequently, he has been under a cloud uh, in the minds of many evangelicals. Sadly, his name has been associated with error, while uh, 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 his years of faithful work have, have been ignored. He was a child of his times, as we all are, Uh, Yet he reacted and responded to events in his lifetime with a spirituality and zeal that would put many of us to shame. I think it's sad that he has been misunderstood and often misquoted. Uh, And in fact, my MA thesis uh, was on uh, Philip Doddridge, which I have here in front of me. In fact, it's all right, I'm not going to give you all my thesis thing. But um, 
many, I think, there, were, there are some who accused him of being Aryan, which he wasn't. Um, uh, there are some who say that he was a Baxterian Calvinist. Uh, Dr. Alan Clifford is one who says that. I think that, um, uh, I think Alan, bless him, is wrong on that. I don't think he was a Baxterian Calvinist at all. I, I'm going to quote what he says about Baxter in a bit, and he is pretty scathing, Doddridge, about Baxter, but there we are. Uh, he was, uh, uh, in many ways, uh, having studied him in some detail and, uh, and uh, lectured on him over a number of occasions, and on a number of occasions, I would almost describe him as we would call them today, he would be a polymath. He was a scientist, he was a member of one of the, uh, the Royal Societies in London, he conducted experiments, uh, he did all kinds of things, uh, he lectured, he spoke, he preached, he was a good theologian. Uh, in so many different ways he was involved uh, in the society of his day. And uh, when I was writing my thesis I came across this entry in the new International Dictionary of the Christian Church. Uh, Zondervan, 1974, and it said this, he, his alleged heresies, Doddridge's, uh, his alleged heresies are probably due to lack of necessary mental equipment to articulate his thoughts clearly. Now, I think that is grossly unfair. He was a multi-talented, multi-competent man whose exploits and achievements leave me breathless, and I've been called a workaholic. Uh, he was so much involved in so many things. And although he was criticised, the facts of his life and the evidence of his writings, I believe, reveal a man who was far more orthodox than many would credit. He was a man of many skills and many interests, and he had a world view which was unusual for his day. Uh, he was a tireless worker, and he was a godly pastor and principal. Now let me put him briefly in context. I'm not going to stop with this long, but it's important that we know this. Uh, if you all uh, know uh, all about Philip Doddridge, forgive me, but this is just a little bit of the background. In the days in which he lived, um, um, he lived. Um, he, uh, Isaac Watts was the older man, Doddridge was the younger man, and they knew one another, and uh, Isaac Watts was quite critical of some of the things that Philip Doddridge did. But then it's quite clear that Isaac Watts did become quite Aryan towards the, or Aryan towards the end of his life. Um, not that that uh, may concern us now. But by the time of Doddridge's life, spiritual life had seriously deteriorated since the days of the early Puritans. By the beginning of the, 18th, the early 18th century, there was a general understanding that Christianity was a lost cause. Geoffrey uh, Nuttall, in his uh, book, Philip Doddridge, his contribution to English religion, makes this comment. The years 1700 to 1750 were a period of dead weight in religion. There was in general a notion that Christianity was a survival, and if men discussed it seriously at all, they discussed it in much the same way as a geologist discusses fossils. Any thought of religion as the life of the soul was laughed at as daydreaming. That was the society into which he, he, he grew up. And how had this status come about? And what was Philip Doddridge's view of the situation? Well, he was especially concerned to uphold the doctrines that were fundamental to orthodoxy. Uh, and he did so in a day 
when such concerns were largely ignored. Now, some of that can go back to be traced back to the anti-Puritan pressure that followed Charles II's uh, reneging on the de declaration signed at Breda, for those of you who know the history. And this was followed by the Corporation Act of 1661, which made the Solemn League and Covenant an illegal document. And matters came to its head uh, with the Fourth Act of Uniformity in 1662, which resulted in 2000, over 2,000 ministers being ejected out of the Church of England for conscience's sake. Uh, for 21 years, I was minister of Zion Congregational Church in Cornwall, in St. Ives in Cornwall, which was a 1662 church uh, founded by, well, I won't go into the history of that, but that's a fascinating piece of history as well. Those who were ejected included Richard Baxter, John Howe, Edward Callamy, and Dr. Samuel Annesley. And that was followed by the Five Mile Act of 1665, which sought to crush nonconformists. And for 25 years, they suffered uh, greatly until the passing of the Toleration Act with William and Mary. Now, during the reign of William and Mary, pressure was put on the non-jurors, many of whom were high churchmen, but not all. They included William Law and Thomas Ken, and so the Church, the Church of England, was left with many time-serving clerics who acted a little bit like the Vicar of Bray in the popular song. And this, of course, brought great discredit upon the Church and upon Christianity, and many lapped into de deism. Well, as much we could say about that, and it was a sad situation, but this was the situation that Doddridge faced when he set up his academy. Now his academy was the result uh, or uh, the, 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 uh, developed uh, from the academy of a man by the name of John Jennings, who started his academy in Kibworth in Leicestershire. Uh, and uh, and uh, Doddridge, in fact, was, uh, was uh, at, uh, sat under uh, uh, John Jennings uh, and became the pastor at Kibworth. His first pastor was in Kibworth. And then he was moved, or he moved from there to Northampton uh, and was at Castle Street, what is today Castle Street, sadly, URC Church today, uh, but that was the church where he was uh, and where his academy was, was, uh, was, was, uh, was built up uh, on the basis of the Academy of John Jennings. And uh, Doddridge developed this and uh, taught his students uh, and uh, he lectured to them. And we're going to be looking particularly at his lectures on preaching in a moment or two. His, in his lectures and dealings with his students, he sought to demonstrate the folly of a simply real rationalistic approach in isolation from the God of the Bible. Our knowledge does not simply come from our experience. Doddridge was greatly concerned to give all sides of the argument when lecturing. So he would present the different sides of the argument and encourage his students to know that. And he was often criticized for this. But I think his reasons were right. When we know, the, uh, when we know what the other side are saying, when we know what they're thinking, then we can argue with them and we can discuss and we, can, we, we, we are given a position of strength. And Doddridge's great concern, and I believe should be our concern, those of us who are preachers and pastors, that we should be teaching our people not only the scriptures, but we should be teaching them to think, to think for themselves. 
So many people have got their theology in their heads, but it needs to be got from their heads to their hearts, if you understand. And we need to get them to think through these things and apply them for themselves. And this was what he sought to do. He wanted his students to know all the arguments so that they were able to answer the philosophical nonsense of the day. Now, it is argued that he didn't give a strong enough lead to his students, and thus he was criticised with a tendency to Arianism, because some of his students did become Arians and even Unitarians. However, to blame the lecturer for the reaction of his students is somewhat unfair. No one wants to be based on the reaction of all one's hearers. I certainly don't want to be judged on my preaching from everybody who sat and listened to me, because some may reject the word, and I know some have rejected the word, and some, uh, when I was down in St. Ives, and we used to have lots of holidaymakers in, I had some very fascinating discussions and sometimes very sad discussions at the doorway as people went out. Uh, one day there was a lady and her husband and they went out of the, and I said, oh, am I, uh, nice to see you, who are you? She said, oh, she said, I'm a Unitarian minister, she said, and this is my husband. And, uh, you know, and uh, she, was, she was quite uh, upset by what I had said because I preached the Bible. Uh, and, uh, well, there we are. <laughs> I won't tell you what I said to her, but there we are. Um, so to blame the lecturer for the reaction of his students is not necessarily the case. And it's obvious from the reports that we have, even from the less sympathetic student, Andrew Kippis, who wrote a, a biography of, or, of Doddridge, that Doddridge took great care over his students he would regularly inquire about their reading, he would advise them in their personal studies, and he was always on hand to answer their questions and to guide them in their research. And when he lectured, the students would take down the lecture in shorthand, together with detailed sources to be read and commented upon and full notes to be taken. And these were then discussed with him in class and he would give guidance in his tutorials and, uh, and uh, you can see some of that uh, in the collected works of Doddridge, uh, which are available uh, uh, from uh, Tentmaker and other places. Uh, and there are there's a copy in the Evangelical Library. And if you're not a member of the Evangelical Library, I encourage you to join the library as well. There we are. There's my commercial, because I'm a trustee of the library. All right. Now, Doddridge knew that he was up against the intellectual and philosophical attacks of the Enlightenment rationalists, and above all, as I say, he wanted his students to think for themselves. He wanted to teach them to think. It's easy to, to come, it's easy to criticize uh, his approach from a distance and the wisdom maybe of a later time, but I believe he acted wisely in the context of the days in which he lived. Uh, J.H. Taylor, uh, in his book, for Philip Doddridge, A Heritage Biography, uh, wrote about the independents and the Congregationalists who organized themselves into the King's Head Society, so, so said to in, encourage evangelical students. And he says this, these men, these independents and Congregationalists of Doddridge's day, soon had suspicions about Doddridge. Not that he was Arian, but because some of his students turned out to be it was his conviction from which nothing would make him waver that he should fairly present each side of a question, 
put his students in full possession of the facts and views and leave each man to make up his own mind. No other way would lead him to his own conclusion. But this method was severely criticised by those who deplored the emergence of any Arian students. It would have mattered little but for the fact that these critics were able to turn away funds from Northampton, from the academy. To one trustee, Doddridge wrote very typically, I well know, sir, that I have many enemies in London, nor will I ever purchase their friendship by running all the lengths of their party zeal. So for being fair-minded and charitable, Doddridge gained a reputation, this is still at J.H. Taylor, for for being fair-minded and charitable, Doddridge gained a reputation that he never lived down. Even in 1805, that was well after he died, a Baptist was, sorry for those of you who are Baptists, a Baptist was heard talking of him in a Northampton stagecoach. A very bad tutor, a very bad tutor. He gave both sides of the question. Dodderidge knew the truth and all besides his damnable heresy. What better proof can you have of his pernicious mode of tuition that most of his divinity students turned out Arians? Well, that was nonsense because only two or three of the students, and I've looked at the records, uh, and of all the students who went through, only two or three actually became Arian, Arian, depending on how you pronounce it. And I think that was a terrible slander perpetrated by uninformed gossip. And after all those years, that... Forgive me saying this, but that ignorant Baptist, not saying that of all Baptists, forgive me, but that ignorant Baptist is still being used to denigrate the teaching methods of Philip Doddridge. Well, so much for that by way of sort of introduction and background to uh, let's come now particularly to his lectures on the preaching and ministerial office. And uh, it is uh, subtitled, The Characters of the Most Celebrated Ministers Among the Dissenters and the establishment. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Philip Doddridge was at great pains to train men to preach. Men were sent out in the early days of, the, uh, of their training uh, at the seminary uh, to local churches. And the churches knew what they were going to get when they, got, when they had uh, Doddridge's students. And uh, Doddridge would send them out with the sermons to read and repeat the classic sermons of the day. Now, there was no deception in that because the church understood that that's what the students would do. But what Doddridge was trying to do was to say, look, here is a good sermon. Here is a well-constructed sermon. You preach this sermon and you will learn as you do that how to preach. Now, you may not like that or you may not approve of that, but I know a church up in in the north and uh, many, many years ago, when I probably back in the in the uh, early 70s when I first began preaching and I went to preach in this church and they got a, they got a notice up on the, on, the, on, the, on the thing about what they did at the midweek meeting. And uh, they had various people there and uh, there was a lady's name against, uh, against a, 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 a meeting. And I said, oh, I said, you, 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 have, you, you don't have lady, women preachers here. No, 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 they said. We get together, they said, on the midweek meeting, she said, they said, and we get somebody to read one of Spurgeon's sermons, and then we discuss it. And it's actually just that one of, one of our ladies is going to be reading it next week. I said, well, all right, okay. You know, I was quite relieved. But they were doing that. They were taking Spurgeon's sermons because they were finding it difficult uh, to get good preachers. Um, 
They were just a small group in a, in, a, in a very small church, and for their midweek meeting, they would read a sermon by Spurgeon, and then they would, then they, then they would discuss it, and they would learn from that. Now, I'm not saying that that's the way to do it, but that's what, what he did. And so what did he do? Well, he gave 25 lectures uh, on, uh, on, uh, uh, on preaching and the ministerial office. Uh, many of them are more... Uh, uh, um, straightforward than his uh, theological lectures. And although they are entitled lectures on preaching, they cover advice uh, for all the pastoral and preaching work of the ministry. And uh, I, uh, I, I, please forgive me because I, I did type, the, I did print this first page out and I, I was going to bring the list so that I could actually give you a copy of that. And I've, I, I, when I got here, I realized I've left them all at home. Um, but uh, uh, I, I'll, I'll run through them in a moment or two. 25 lectures, and they were the final year students uh, as they prepared for pastoral ministry. And what happened with the final year students is that they would accompany Doddridge each Sunday as he went out to preach and on his pastoral visits. So their training was practical as well as theological. I'm very glad that when I started in the ministry, I did go out once or twice uh, with other men. I can remember, well, even before I started in the ministry, I can remember going out uh, with, um, when, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, with uh, uh, one of the uh, deacons from the church where I was brought up, uh, and we would go and visit. We did, we did a lot of uh, visiting in the area, uh, uh, going around knocking on doors and taking leaflets. What the church used to do was it used to produce this, uh, this leaflet uh, that was printed, and uh, we would go and we would distribute that um, uh, one week. And then a week later, we would go back and we would knock on the doors and say, we put our loaflet through the door. We've come to introduce ourselves to you uh, because uh, uh, you know that we are the local church. And uh, you know, it was a new church uh, on, a, on a housing estate in, Leic in Leicestershire where I, was where I was brought up. And uh, well, we did that for a while. And I went out with this uh, quite senior uh, church officer because they knew that I was eventually going to go into the ministry. I was probably in my late teens, uh, and uh, we went round and we knocked on the doors, and uh, we went down this street, and we did about, I don't know, eight houses we went to, and we'd, had, we'd, we'd, we'd been invited into one of them. We spent quite a while in there, and, and the, the, the deacon had led the discussion, and I'd been there and things. And then we, we got to a house, and he said, look, he said, he said, I've knocked on the door and started the conversation. He said, you take the next house. All right, so I went up to the, with him by my side, went up to the door, knocked on the door, and the door opened, and there was the deputy head of the school I was at. <laughs> and he looked at me, he said, Densham, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. didn't know you lived here, sir. <laughs> that was my first introduction to, uh, to, uh, to visiting. <laughs> well, there you are. So, uh, and I still go out visiting, it didn't put me off. But there we are. But uh, he was very, very pleasant about it. And as soon as he realized that I was there with a senior man from the church, he understood. And, uh, and um, I, you know, I thought, oh, dear, I'm going to get in trouble at school for this. But fortunately, that was OK. But it's quite a shock, I tell you. Anyway, so that's what, what he did. Um, and I've tried to do that. I, I, I trained a young man up uh, who's taken over from me and um, uh, in, in uh, Manchester. And uh, he, went, he came with me when, I first, when he first came to us. He came with me uh, to do pastoral visits so that he would get some experience 
of what to do. Now, the training was practical as well as theologi uh, theological, uh, and the lectures that we have, the printed lectures that we have, uh, are prepared uh, from the manuscripts being the substance of what Doddridge gave and the syllabus which uh, Doddridge enlarged as he gave to the lectures to his students. And in the introduction um, uh, to the in the miscellaneous works, the editor has written this. Here we have a collection of rules, maxims, cautions relative to preaching and the pastoral care as ample and well-chosen as, as are anywhere to be found. Delivered with the greatest perspicuity and minutely detailed according to varied circumstances. In them we discover a great insight into human nature, a uniform regard to religious and moral and civil propriety and conduct, ardent wishes to benefit mankind by promoting vital and practical religion, with marks of uncommon diligence in the author himself, which may operate as a powerful stimulus on the reader's mind to imitate so fair an example. Well, let's look at a number of these. The first lecture, introduction and general remarks and directions relative to the Christian ministry. What does he do? Well, there are 25 lectures. Three lectures are on writers of biblical and theological works. Eight lectures on the, what we might call the technical aspects of preaching, exposition, and so on. Four on the conduct of public worship in the ministry. Two on catechizing. Two on the sacraments, one on baptism, one on the Lord's Supper. And four on visiting and other public conduct. In the first lecture, Doddridge begins by outlining the significance of the work of the ministry, and he insists that preaching is the most important. Here is paragraph one of the first lecture. Gentlemen, you have devoted yourselves to the work of the ministry, and it is the main thing you have in view in the course of your present studies. Other things are taken in only as subservient to this. You well know it consists of several branches. The first on which you enter is preaching, capital letters, which, though not the only, is one of the most important parts of a minister's duty. Preaching requires genius, not much hope for some of us, application and the divine blessing. Of the former that is genius, few who are capable of academical studies are entirely destitute, nor is, nor is any great height of genius necessary. The latter, with a good intention and pious conduct, may be expected. Diligence, therefore, is generally the main thing wanting, yet this, is under, a wrong yet this under a wrong conduct may turn into little account to prevent which the following advices are designed recommending the success to the Spirit of God. And so he begins with some general directions. And I'm not going to go through and read, but I'm going to summarize some of them. And let me just uh, give you a number of them. He speaks of sincere piety. 
Keep close to God. Be spiritual men. Be devout. Be holy men. Secondly, keep walking close to God. That is to be our habitual exercise. That is understanding and expecting the divine presence. And in that, be constant in prayer. Thirdly, cultivate a tender love for souls. My friends, we need that, don't we? We need to know, particularly those of us who are preachers and pastors, we need to love our people. Remember being told when I was in Bible college, you spend your time showing your people you love them and then they will accept what you have to say from the pulpit. Now, it's not that they don't accept it before, but it's how important it is. Thirdly, or fourthly, sorry, I, I, I haven't numbered these. Sincere party, party, keep walking closely to God. Cultivate a tender love for souls. Cultivate an extensive and candid acquaintance with the world. By what he means by that is not be worldly, but know what the world is up to. Know what the world is doing. Make sure you keep in touch with what is going on in the world so that your preaching is relevant and practical and with a critical assessment. In other words, know your enemy. Next, get to know the hearts of men and women, obviously. Get to know the people. Get to know their hearts. Get to know what makes them tick. Now, my friends, it worries me today, and forgive me, I'm not, I'm not criticizing anybody here who's in the ministry, but it's, it saddens me today that I know of men in the ministry who hardly do any visiting, and they don't know their congregation, they don't know their people. How can you preach to people if you don't know them, if you don't understand what, what troubles them, what concerns them, their burdens, their cares, their sorrows? Now, I know there are good and faithful pastors in front of me, and I'm not, please, I'm not, but it's so helpful. Learn from them. Get to know the hearts of men and get to know your people and learn from them. Doddridge goes on to say, this will help your preaching to be relevant and to be experimental. He encourages them to read the best authors, but especially the scriptures. Read all other books with care, he says, with discernment. Take notes of every sermon you hear. Review your notes and add your own thoughts. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that so helpful. I, I, I don't do it every time I hear preaching these days, but quite often, even now, if I'm listening to somebody preach, I will take notes, even if they're the minimal of notes, because it helps to focus my mind on what they're saying. And even if I never look at the notes again, the fact that I've written it down has helped to endorse it and keep it in my mind. And when people say, what did your, son, what did your pastor preach on last Sunday? Well, I'm not going to test you. But if you've written it down, you, even if you don't go back and read it, because you've done that, it's helped to fix it in your mind. Um, please, I'm not telling you you've got to do that, but this was what he was saying to his students. Take notes of every sermon you hear. And then he said, review your notes and add your own thoughts. And this is a quote from Doddridge. Painting and carving are learnt by imitation and by observing the defects as well as the beauties of great masters. So you learn from mistakes as well as from good things. He says, keep notes. Keep what he calls a commonplace book, where you write schemes of sermons and ideas. 
And then he says, keep another book for schemes that are perfect. Well, I've never found a perfect scheme yet, so I've not yet started that book, and I'm at the end of my ministry. But I do, I do write things down. I write lots of things down. Above all, he says, keep looking to God for more wisdom and grace. Have a firm persuasion in your own minds of the importance of the work. And then he gives three lectures on reading, and he talks about practical writers, and he goes through a lot of the writers of his day. He talks about Bolton and Bishop Hall and Reynolds and Sibbs and Ward, Samuel Ward, worthy to be read through. I I commend Samuel. There's a little book printed, I think it's still still available, but my little book was printed by the banner some years ago. I don't know if it's still in print. Samuel Ward, get his sermons. It's only a little thin book, but it's, oh, it just does your soul. Well, it did my soul good anyway. He says, worthy to be read through. His language is generally proper, elegant, and and nervous. Not quite sure what he means by nervous. His thoughts are well digested and happily illustrated. There we are. Many of the boldest figures of speech are to be found in him beyond any English writer. And so on. And then he develops that. He died before he was 28 years old. Had he lived, he would probably have been the phoenix of British preachers. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's why Samuel Ward isn't known very well today. But there we are. And he writes about Owen and Goodwin. He says, Owen and Goodwin, both highly evangelical, but both very obscure, especially the latter. Now, that's surprising because I, well, no, I don't, I don't, I I like both Owen and Goodwin, but they are hard going, they are hard going sometimes, but I would have said, um, and then he says this, Owen's style resembles St. Paul's. There is a great deal of zeal and much knowledge of human life discovered in all his works especially on his book on apostasy. Well, there you are. Well, maybe that will encourage you to read Owen. And so on, and then he gives lots of more things. And then he says this about, about Richard Baxter, which I think is quite interesting, considering what, what has been written about uh, Baxter and Doddridge. Here is Doddridge's comment on Baxter. He is inaccurate because he had no regular education and always wrote in haste, as in the views of eternity, but generally judicious, nervous, spiritual, and evangelical, though often charged with the contrary. He discovers a manly eloquence and the most evident proofs of an amazing genius, with respect to which he may not improperly be called the English Demosthenes. His works are very proper for conviction, see his saints rest. All his treatises on conversion, especially his call to the unconverted, Divine life and counsel to young men. Few were ever instrumental of awaking more souls. So he, he, he acknowledges some positive things there. Uh, Thomas Manton, plain, easy, and unaffected. His thoughts are generally well digested, and so on. Well, there we are. Flavel, not deep, not remarkably judicious, but plain, popular, and tender. Well, those of you who know. And Charnock, I love Charnock, but there we are. Celebrated by some as a polite writer. I was surprised to read that. But chiefly by those who are not true judges of politeness, he says. He has some fine words. His divisions are too numerous. His thoughts are often obscure and in disorder. No clear and distinct ideas in the many of the differences he makes. Yet he has some very remarkable, valuable things. On the attributes, he is deep and sublime. Well, there you are. Well, I, yeah, I don't, I, 
I would give I would give Charnock a few few more marks than that, I think, but there we are. That was Doddridge's comment. And he goes on, he's got, uh, he, he talks about a whole number of people, including some perhaps which we might not consider, uh, but I think it's worth considering them. He says, read carefully, read widely, don't get fixated by one author, otherwise you will learn a disagreeable imitation of one. And then he says, take notes of what you read, and first of all, read the Puritans, and he assesses, I say, these various writers from the past, and it makes quite a fascinating reading. And then he comes in Lecture 5 uh, to Rules for Composing Sermons, and they're very, uh, very interesting to read and to study some of the things he says. I'm not going to deal with this in great detail, but he begins with what we might call the technical aspects of sermon preparation and how uh, to choose a subject and what, tr- what thoughts are best to do, uh, the doctrines of natural religion and things like this, and so on. And then when he says, first, starting out as a young preacher, there are some subjects to be preferred and some to be declined. Well, here are the ones to be declined. Now, listen to this, and then I'll tell you why he says this. He says, the being and providence of God, future rewards and punishments, Distinctions between moral good and evil. Why are they to be declined? Doddridge says, because these are generally believed. Wow, what a difference today. What a difference today. These are things I think that we should be preaching. But he said, we don't, you know, when you're starting out, in them, he's not saying don't never preach on them. What he's saying, when you first start out in the ministry as a young preacher, you don't need to deal with these doctrines because they're generally believed by everybody. I think what a terrible situation we live in today. And then he says the evidences of Christianity. He says, well, if there's a lot of deism in your church, then preach them. But it's better to catechize and put such matters into print. And then he argues for the same reason, that we don't need to spend too much time on the doctrine of the Trinity or of the two natures of Christ or the highest points of Calvinism, he says. Better to give hints in our preaching rather than whole discount courses. And again, because generally speaking, these things were known. He's not saying don't preach them, but when you first start out, you know, these are things to deal with when you've been in the ministry a while and you can tackle with, tackle with them in some depth. But in your early days, you don't need to bother with these because people know these. And you can preach on the understanding that they do know them. We live in an ignorant age, do we not today? And then he, say, he warns about types and the, not that he's against types, but he says he's the danger of fancy of too much allegorizing. And then he talks about, he says, be careful of preaching about particular sins and duties. Why? Because of the danger of getting at people and our preaching become legal. Now, he's not saying don't speak about sins, but do it with care. And he, rec- he says, recommend positive virtues and in urge them by evangelical motives. The settled minister should sometimes insist on some such subjects and ought to do it. Particularly, he is seeking to caution youth and to deter folk from keeping bad company. 
And then he says, when you're, again, this is for young preachers first starting out, don't preach a continued series from the same verse or chapter ought to be avoided by young preachers because of the danger of wearying our hearers. Now, Doddridge himself regularly preached through the whole of the scriptures in an expository manner. But he's saying in the early stages of your ministry, don't do that, do it later. And he says also, beware of very strong representations of the wrath of God or of the nature of torments in hell. Rather, warn favorably. Take care not to represent God as a tyrant. I've heard people preach on hell in a way which is not helpful. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't preach on hell. Uh, we should. And I don't think we preach enough on hell or enough on heaven for that matter. But uh, do it with care. Now, what about things that are preferred for the early, for the early stages? Well, here are some positives. Things that relate immediately to Christ. Preach on the glories of his person and the riches of his grace, including his incarnation, his birth, his example, his preaching, his conduct, his passion, his death, his resurrection and ascension, his intercession, his relations and offices as husband, brother, prophet, priest, king, physician, shepherd, captain, strength, head, forerunner, advocate, friend, saviour and judge. That'll keep you going for a while, won't it? The covenant of grace is to be preferred. Here, consider the nature of justification and faith, the nature, necessity, reasonableness, and effects of repentance, the excellency of the gospel, the superiority of the covenant of grace. It saddens me that many, many preachers I hear today don't seem to have a clue about the covenant of grace and the significance of covenantal understanding of these things. Maybe that's just the circles in which I move, but there we are. And then he says another thing, the spirit and his operations, our absolute need of him and his work of conviction, conversion and consolation, his assistance in prayer and his witness in the heart, add cautions against grieving the spirit and directions for walking in the spirit and being filled with the spirit. And again, the privileges of the children of God, the pardon of sin, of adoption, of God's providential care, all things working together for good, access to God through Christ, believing views of glory. These subjects, he says, will be like a lancet concealed in a sponge to the heart of sinners and raise the devout affections of true Christians. And then here is another preferred. General views of religion. People generally know what is right, but they need to be persuaded to practice it. Practical. Here's another. The love of Christ and a devotional temper urge the keeping up of a continual communion with him. That's good, isn't it? Here's another. The temptations and exercises of the pious soul describe the cause of discouragements, lay down rules for judging of sincere grace. Christians, if you do this, Christians will be comforted and hypocrites convicted, he says. 
Such sermons are generally very profitable. Death, judgment and eternity. Funeral sermons sermons will often demand these. Life, death, heaven, in various views, conformity to God, beholding the glory of Christ, the saints and angels, and the influence of these prospects. And then examples of scripture characters and sacred history. So plenty of things preferred for the young preacher. Now the the declined are not not to be done, but not by the young preacher. Let the young preacher get his colours first and get his experience. And then in chapter 6, lecture 6, he deals with different strains of preaching. Let me find the page uh, in the book in case I've marked anything in red particularly to draw your attention to. Uh, Lecture 6, no, all right, different strains of preaching. And he gives here a few suggestions on the general matter of composition. Not style, which refers to the structure of sentences, the way things are said, but the general view of composition. Rather, the aspect of the entire discourse. What impression do your sermons leave? And he gives us a number of things to consider here. He says, be argumentative. Now, what he means by that is that we are to prove and demonstrate a proposition. He's not saying that we're to be argumentative and argue with people, but we are to adopt a style that is argumentative in the sense that we prove and demonstrate what we are saying. We show the argument, the way in which things work. So, in other words, don't use abstract arguments. Use reason and logic and explain the truth. I can remember as a very young minister going along to the Westminster Fellowship, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones would often quote those words of, uh, is it wise at Watts, where reason fails with all its powers, their faith prevails and love adores. And the doctor would say, faith is reasonable. It may be above reason, but it is reasonable. In other words, faith is not a leap into the dark, it's a leap into the light. And I think Doddridge has got that same kind of sense as he says, use reason and logic to explain the truth. Our faith is not resting upon our reason, but our faith is reasonable. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say there and what I think Doddridge is saying this. And then he says our preaching should be pathetic, Now, again, not the way in which we understand the word, but with pathos. Address your hearers. He's talking about passion. The passions are the sails of the soul, he says. Fill them with a prosperous wind. I like that. I think that's wonderful. Again, one of the things that saddens me these days when I go, I don't don't often, I don't, Often I'm sitting in the car, but I am from time to time. And I go to some churches and I, I think, man, as the man is preaching, I think, man, do you believe what you're saying? Let's have a bit of conviction about what you're saying. Do you really believe what you're saying? Now, I think the people often are. I think the man possibly is. But show it. Demonstrate it. I remember, no names, no pack drill, but I remember years ago as a young minister going to hear, I, I thought, well, I was starting, I'd started going to the Westminster to, to fellowship 
Um, and there was a man there who was regularly there and was very highly um, respected by many of the, of the men. And I, I highly respected him. He was a lovely, godly man. And uh, my wife and I had a Sunday off on one, when I, when I, oh, my, I had a Sunday off. I said to my wife, come. And it was before we had our children. We, 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 were, we were not long married. I said, come on, let's, let's go up to London. Let's hear this man. Uh, be, be good to hear him. You know, everybody talks about him. What a wonder. We went and we sat there and he, and, and, and he preached. And he preached the gospel, but he preached it in such a pathetic, pathetic in the wrong sense of the word. And he said, well, he said, um, you know, this is the kind of thing. And, well, you, you, you know, it, it might be a good idea if you sort of thought about uh, coming to Christ. And, uh, you know, well, if you came to him, you, and, well, you, and it was if and but and dither, dither. I sat there and I thought, this man, people, people look up to this man as a great preacher. Golly me. Do you, and I really sat there and I thought, do you believe, I, I think he did, but do you believe it? And he gave no impression that he really believed what he was preaching. And I remember my wife and I, we, we walked out, we were really disappointed with what he said. So, as Doddridge says, pleading but not haranguing. Ride in the whirlwind and direct the storm, he said. Remember, he says, different degrees of fire become different subjects. Well, let's have some fire in our preaching, brethren, those of us who are preaching. And then he says, insinuating. Now, by that, what he means is use gentleness and soft touches. Show men and women the workings of their minds, their own minds, gently and comfortably in that sense and then he says evangelical he says always bring the gospel in never preach without introducing christ and the holy spirit and he says this is this is doddridge rather digress as saint paul does than omit them my friends i think that's so important is it not and then spiritual and experimental. The great concerns of religion is conviction. The danger of neglecting conviction, he says. The nature of temptation of good men as they seek to combat indwelling sin. So study the Psalms and cultivate what he calls Christian tempers. And then he says this, scriptural. Open up, he says, the beauty and the energy of that particular scripture on which you are preaching. Well, I'm sorry if I get carried away with that because I'm a preacher by my need. And there we are. And then he comes in lecture seven to the style of sermons. Pure, intelligible and clear. He says our preaching should be strong. And he says not like Dr. Watts at times. So obviously, he didn't think that Isaac Watts was as clear as he should have been at times. Calm and composed, orthodox, grave and solemn. Be particularly careful to preserve reverence when speaking of the divine being. Keep up the majesty of the pulpit, he says. Plain and unaffected in style. Avoid many points of wit. He says, this is like Nero loading his galleys with sand 
for wrestlers, while Rome was starving for want of corn, or like offering a basket, offering a basket of flowers to a hungry man. Use similes, use allusions, illustrate, form your own style and manner gradually, digest well your thoughts, preach in a lively manner and vary your style according to your subject. Perspicuity is a great friend to harmony. Chapters eight and nine on the choice of thoughts, make sure your thoughts are solid and useful and proper and natural, not forced on the subject. Make headings distinct, but not too many, and not too many subdivisions either. Draw up a very distinct skeleton. And then in chapter 10, he talks about sermon compositions. Meditate, learn yourself, your best times to study, and then guard them. Um, begin with prayer. Ask questions. How should the sermon begin? Does the text need explaining? Don't make difficulties if there are none, and don't be divided in your own mind. All right. What regard to Christ and the Holy Spirit may be properly introduced to your discourse? Do not neglect this. Quote scripture and illustrate from scripture. Address the conscience and think about the conclusion. Remember, he says, I am a man, not a boy. I am a servant of God and not of the world or of men. I am a minister of Christ and not a deist or a philosopher. I am a successor of the apostles. I and my hearers are dying creatures. I am perhaps composing my last sermon, a sermon which, sermon which I may not live to deliver. And he then gives further advice on composition and encourages his hearers to practice this method seven years and it will become natural and easy. Oh, I wish so, I wish so. I've been preaching for a lot longer than that. It's certainly no longer, still not natural and easy. Well, obviously I'm not doing it right, am I? Something's wrong somewhere. The delivery of sermons. First, then, then yes, lecture 11 on the delivery of sermons. That is a matter of great importance. We should be grave and serious and distinct with genuine feeling, but not false emotion. Vary your delivery as suits your sermon. Avoid theatrical airs. An actor may repeat Whitfield's sermons to great acclaim, he says, but it would have no moral effect. Speak out of a full heart and don't be tied to your notes. Well, I'm sorry, I'm pretty tied to my notes today, but then I'm lecturing, not preaching. Uh, all right. Guard against faults rather than striving for beauty. If your delivery has no faults, it will probably have some beauty. And then he says, master your notes. And he says this, it is a sad reproach to a man when he cannot read his own writing before a con congregation. Yet this I have seen often. Well, there we are, there we are in these days of typing and all the rest of it and word processing, we have no excuse on that score, but there we are. If you, if you ever see Doddridge's writing, it's not very easy to read anyway, so there we are. But anyway, but hopefully we can read our own writing, but there we are. And then he says, get above the fear of the people. Fix your dependence upon God and seek divine assistance. 
And then here's his advice, quote, do not sit up too late on Saturday night nor study too intensely on the Lord's Day morning. And then he says, seek the honest opinions of friends who are the best judges. Lecture 14, some more general observations and directions and advice. He says, and this is interesting after what some of us were talking about at lunchtime, he says, don't preach the same sermon too often. <laughs> there we are. Who was it? Was it were you, Jeff, telling us of someone who preached a sermon 71 times or something? Oh, Campbell Morgan. <laughs> well, there we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I heard the doctor preach. There were, there were two or three sermons I heard the doctor preach probably four times. And I think he preached it more than that. But there we are. So there we are. But there we are. Don't, uh, don't preach the same sermon too often. And then he says, well, this is my paraphrase. Know when you have finished and shut up. He put it more tactfully than that. He took it more tactfully than that. You know, sometimes I hear people, and you know they've finished, but they waffle on and on and on for another five minutes, and you think, man alive, when you finish, stop. Just stop. Anyway, there we are. My wife tells me that I do sometimes stop very abruptly at the end of preaching. Well, sometimes, you know, end with a challenge, you know. What about you? And then don't just stop. Finish. Don't keep going. Don't you know? Think. Oh, I, I'm, you know that's that's not a good. Leave men with a, men and women with a, with with something in their minds, and take a, if, if they're taken aback by it, all well and good in one sense, because they've taken in what you've said and they're thinking about it. Why were you stopped? Have I? And make it personal. I hope you understand what I'm. Those of you who are preaching, our preachers, I think, will understand that more, perhaps. Um, but anyway, retire for prayer both before and after the sermon. You are to be more concerned for God's glory than your, than your own. So don't fish for applause, but candidly hear honest criticism and learn from them. Sometimes keep a day of solemn devotion. Let God have all the glory. Humble yourself before him. Plead earnestly with God for a blessing on yourselves, yourselves and those committed to your care, and maintain character and conduct in life agreeable to your preaching. Lecture 13 deals with directions for prayer, and they are full of sound, practical, common sense. I'm not going to stop with this in detail, but he says prayer is a matter of great difficulty and great importance to our usefulness and has a greater influence even on preaching than many are aware. I remember again when a, a young Christian, a young pastor, not long been into the ministry and I was advised to go and hear this so-called great preacher and uh, this man got up again, I won't say the name because some of you may have heard of him. And he stood up to preach and he started off by saying, first thing that shook me was he started off by saying, oh, he said, um, I'm so glad to be preaching here, he said. He said, last week we had the local Roman Catholic preaching in our church. And then he said, of course, everybody knows that prayer is easy. And I sat there and I thought, I don't find prayer easy. And I'm in the ministry. And I've got something wrong here. Doddridge, I think, has got his finger on it. Prayer is a matter of great difficulty and great importance to our usefulness. 
Prayer is not easy, my friends. I'm not trying to make difficulties for you, but if, if we're going to pray, pray, pray and pray, and pray till it hurts, it's not easy. And I don't know about you, but I still find, after all these years, I find at times, there are times when prayer is a battle. It is not easy. And he gives advice on what to do. Furnish yourselves with a variety of prop, matter proper for prayer. Converse much, with it, converse much with your own heart and get well acquainted with the state of your souls and so on. Make a serious business of secret and family prayer. Labor hard to bring your hearts to a serious frame when approaching God in them and so on. Guard against sentences excessively long when you pray with others. Better to have them too short. Be generally careful to observe a method in your prayer. The principal parts of prayer are invocation with adoration, confession, petition, intercession with thanksgiving, and so on. And uh, so on. Well, I won't stop with that now. Lectures 14 to 24, uh, I deal with public exposition, the character of commentators, general discussion directions on exposition, further advices relating to exposition, lecture 17 on catechizing, lecture 18, further directions about catechizing, 19 on the administering of baptism, 20 on the administering of the Lord's Supper, 21 on visiting in general, 22 on visiting the sick, 23 general maxims for conversation, 24 rules of conduct to those to whom such particular, such particular care and regard will be requisite. And then his final chapter, which I will deal with very briefly, on the behavior to other ministers and miscellaneous remarks in conclusion. And as he talks about other ministers, he says, on this interesting subject, I shall offer first observations. And he says this, behave, treat them with respect, think as honorably of them as you can and speak well of their labels. Avoid everything that looks like sheep stealing and assist them as much as you can in their temporal affairs. For this purpose, keep up a correspondence with people in good circumstances and those who can inform you, and so on. And encourage meetings of ministers, but don't let them become authoritative synods. Encourage days of prayer and fasting for the success of the ministry. And then he says, encourage a society for books so I encourage you to join the Evangelical Library. And I enjoy, encourage you also to join a reading group. We in EFCC have a reading group, and it's helpful. And uh, London Seminary has a reading group for ministers, and I attend that usually. And then he says this, and uh, you may find this more hard, but he says, have but few intimate friends, intimate friends, but build on them and make sure that they are good friends. And then he says, consider yourselves as weak, fallible creatures. Let integrity and uprightness preserve you. Remember, he writes, when a minister is despised, his usefulness is at an end, and no pulpit talents can support him without prudence. And then he says this, consider yourselves as weak, 
fallible creatures. Be thankful for instructions. Beware of the reputation of a great politician. Let integrity and uprightness preserve you. Read over these rules once a year at least and enrich them with the best remarks you can. Well, that is Philip Doddridge's advice, my friends.